Welcome to Have You Seen This, the world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten visual media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Welcome to Have You Seen This with Tim and Jen. Woo! For this episode, we are covering a film that is near and dear to my heart, uh, a, a piece of artwork that I first invoked in our uh, debut episode. Uh, it's it's a movie that I liked as a teen, and uh, apparently no one else did. It was a, a Bruce Willis action comedy called Hudson Hawk. It turns out that you are no longer alone, because when I announced on the pod account that we were going to be covering Hudson Hawk, we got a ton of responses and retweets and people saying, oh, I love that movie. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I we'll get into that in a second. One of the things that I want to mention first, though, part of the impetus for this podcast and partly why we want to like celebrate a lot of things that we like is, you know, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts for the same reason I don't listen to a lot of AM radio, um, but I... <laughs> But being a fan of uh, Hudson Hawk, like I am, I listened to the uh, "How Did This Get Made" uh, podcast, looking for some insight, you know, some 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 more information on you know the the context or the behind the scenes or what more about Hudson Hawk, and just uh, they they never got around to it. It it didn't it didn't illuminate um, you know, my my understanding of it. So that was the point where yeah. Where I turned to Jen, and Jen said, I want to do a podcast. And I'm like, oh, okay, that works. Uh, so everything worked out as, as we needed. And, and things went so well that we got people following us on, on Twitter and subscribing to our Patreon. Jen, you got someone that you want to shout out, don't you? Yes, I do. I would like to give a special shout out to Danny from Pittsburgh. Thank you for supporting the show, Danny. And you can join Danny and all the other hysterics at patreon.com slash have you seen this and for only two dollars a month you can become one of the cool kids who appreciates movies like hudson hawk that were unloved in their time yes less than a newspaper subscription for lane meyer yeah because i mean who the fuck is subscribing to newspapers now anyway oh like do you not go on the internet what the hell is wrong with you i don't know um well let's see dumb motherfucker (laughs) now i i am going off of uh Mostly off of memory for this movie, um, because I uh, did have a hat convention in July I needed to attend. Um, <laughs> but the, despite the, um, the details of it, uh, I mean, I want to say, you know, I do want to say it so badly, I'm going to say it. It's a fun movie. It's a fun action comedy. The reason that it was so uh, maligned is because it came on the heels of Die Hard and Die Hard 2. Um, so people went into this going, oh, cool, more John McClane. Let's roll with this. And then you see it and you're like, what the hell is this? But if you take it in the spirit that it's intended, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun and it's ridiculous. And that it is ridiculous, if you're on board for it, it is so rewarding. And my, um, my you know, connection with it is that it has the same feel of a lot of the uh, role-playing games that I was playing with my friends at the time. Where everything again with the tabletop RPGs. Yes, yes. Uh, it was, and I mean, granted, we weren't playing D and D, so you know, it, we're playing you know modern like GURPS style stuff. 
And the th- great thing about... It's a GURP. It's a generic universal role-playing system, Jen. Come on. Keep up. Oh, I thought it, I thought it was like that granola stuff that they eat at camp. Oh, no, I don't, I don't know anything about that. It's GURP. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, I, I only say GURPS because I don't want to say that we're playing Palladium games because we're just going to get hate mail for that. But but it, it, if you... People are slowly tuning out one at a time. <laughs> They're just like, oh my God, don't, don't say Ninjas and Super Spice. Oh, geez. There's a, a podcast that I do listen to. If, if you're on board with me going on about uh, tabletop role-playing games, there's a podcast called MDC, The Mega Dumb Cast, where a passionate autist goes over page by page all the like dumb ideas in uh, a couple of Palladium role-playing books. He goes through um, Beyond the Supernatural. He goes through Riffs. Um, he touches on uh, Villains Unlimited, a, a source book for Heroes Unlimited. It's it's a it's a stupid role playing system, and I was you know eleven, so I didn't know any better. But the thing, the saving grace of a lot of uh, Palladium role playing games, the the rule set is terrible. The combat is ponderous, but the ideas in it are fantastic. And if you're a little kid with that kind of anything goes whimsical action mentality, it's it's a lot of fun and. That is the same spirit that uh, Hudson Hawk embodies. Because, like, if if you were going to do this as a role playing game, let's say that um, that you're that you're say you're, you were a big fucking nerd. Yeah, you were listening to like Yes or King Crimson or something. You know, just like a huge, just like just awful nerd that no one wants to hang say out with. You've been to the digital barn multiple times <laughs> and you have more than one Mac classic stored in your apartment. Right. Say you're a horse fan and you collect toys that you don't actually play with. Um, so <laughs> say, say you are such a big nerd uh-huh. that you want to go to nothing but horror and comic book and Lego conventions. What, uh, who's that an own on exactly? Uh, you. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I, guess I won't see you at uh, Midsummer Scream then. <laughs> well, you won't see anybody at Midsummer Scream. It got canceled. But there is a live stream on August 1st, so yeah. be sure to check that out if you can. Yeah, the USC is hosting that. Um, Jen won't be there because she's too cool for the rest of us. Um, so let's say I'm that... I'm going to be too busy listening to Rush and watching Roddy Piper matches. <laughs> yeah, not a nerd. Um, not a nerd right yeah so so let's say that you're you're the gm and you've decided you want to run this hudson hawk campaign and you and you tell your players (laughs) which is somehow an even worse idea than making the original movie to begin with yeah we aren't even there yet um so your so your players (laughs) come to you with their pre-made munchkin you know super unbalanced broken characters where the first one says okay I am going to play the best cat burglar ever. And you're like, okay, yeah, that fits. This is kind of, you know, a cloak and dagger, James Bond kind of thing. And the other one says, yeah, I am a CIA operative. All right, all right, cool. And then the other one says, I'm playing a nun. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, okay, we're going to make it work. God damn, I I didn't, I honestly didn't think that you were going to bring it around to something relevant to the topic, but you did. Oh, ye of little faith. Like this I'm is, sorry I doubted you. Yeah, no, this that is the whole You're point of this. You're still a fucking nerd, but Well, yeah, I yeah, it's, it's someone who is uh versed in uh occult knowledge. That's what a nerd is. 
So <laughs> douchebags are a hygienic product. I will take that as a compliment. You're welcome, m'lady. So yeah, so some of the some of the villains that we encounter in this, um, a uh, butler with uh, retractable knives, a, a kind of nod to to odd job. He's he's a tall, imposing figure, something like Jaws from you know the uh, James Bond series. Um, there's uh, one guy who only speaks through a stack of index cards. Uh, how how does that work? Like how how would that even make sense? If you don't think about it, if you just roll with it, it's you're like, yeah, okay, sure. I mean, it's almost like it was a joke. Yeah, it is. It's if you're on board with all these silly things, then if you just take it the way that um, it's presented to you, that's yeah. There, there's an escape from an ambulance on a medical trolley, which I can see that a being gurney. a gurney. Yeah, a gurney. Where I, you know, where it's like, yeah, I can see that set piece just kind of happening, where it just kind of happens organically, where you know the players are going from, you know, from, from one set piece from a uh, sort of uh, botched heist because you need to keep the story moving forward, and um, and and you know they're just like, well, we got to get out of here, and it's, the only thing I can find is an ambulance. Okay, we're running away in the ambulance. It's just sort of, you you just kind of keep the ball rolling however it works and you, the story just progresses and you never know what direction it's going to take but that's that for me was always like the most fun of playing role playing games as a kid is that you know the story progresses but however you get there is entirely up to you and usually it it's just it comes in from out of the blue and a lot of things in this movie have that th- same feel to them where you go you know how how does he get from you know, from New Jersey to to Rome. Well, they ship him in a crate. Like I don't know. It doesn't matter. You just got from one place to another. But it's one of those things. It's like, sure, uh, yeah, that we'll we'll roll with that. It's like, well, it happened. Therefore, there must be a reason for it. Okay, but it, just taking all that in stride, I think, is what makes this movie so much fun. Tim, I appreciate you making the connection to another form of storytelling because. Yeah. That's the kind of big brain take that we want to hear on this podcast, which is for nerds. Right. But I think you're forgetting something very important, okay. which is the musical element. Right. Yes. This, I mean, you know, I get a lot of grief for, you know, people for not liking musicals, but it's like, I do like musicals. I like Hudson Hawk. I like, you know, Blues Brothers. I like Meaning of Life. I like uh, Top Secret. Well, Bill Corbett said that those aren't actually musicals. Well, what what does Bill Corbett know of the theater? <laughs> uh, I will say that, um, you know, to his discredit, um, uh, first off, the four earrings thing, I understand it was, you know, the early 90s, whatever Bruce Willis, go with it. The The weakest part of this movie is Bruce Willis's quipping in it. Everything else, I think, I, I enjoy it and I accept it. It's Bruce Willis quipping that just doesn't work. I have to say... Okay. About regarding regarding Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. he's one of those actors where I understand his appeal to okay. the public because he broke really big in the mid '80s on Moonlighting, which mm-hmm. was the TV show with Sybil Shepherd, um, and then he became a huge star with uh, movies that we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, Die Hard. Yeah, um, the appeal of John that. McClane, yeah. yeah. The appeal Playing, of that being um, that he's not, you know, he's not sliced alone. He's not Schwarzenegger. He's the guy from Moonlighting. 
Yeah, he, well, he's playing, um, because not only does he play a relatable blue-collar guy who's not an invincible action hero, like yep. so many others in the 80s, he also has a sense of humor. Um, and I think that he he really got um, he really got his chops doing comedy. I mean, Moonlighting was kind of like a romantic comedy type of show. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of patter. Chemistry between the two leads, even though they hated each other in real life. Um, and a lot of times you'll watch a Bruce Willis movie and you will see, like, the humor coming through. But for me, a lot of the time with Bruce, uh, not so much today where I feel like he just kind of looks like a dour, hulking penis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his early roles where yeah, he was kind of a little that. bit like... <laughs> I like a penis with a sense of humor. All right. That's why I hang out with you. <laughs> hey! I don't even have an answer for it. That's too perfect. Uh, woo! Yeah. So Bruce is, you know, he has charm. He has comedic timing. He's a funny guy. Um, But I also find him incredibly grating when he's just allowed to do whatever he wants, which I think was the case in this movie. Now, the thing with Hudson Hawk is that this was a film which was developed by Willis and a friend of his, uh, Robert Kraft, who was um, a music... He ended up being a music industry guy, but, you know, they kind of like to fuck around, write songs together. Um, Bruce Willis forged a uh, kind of a brief side career in being a Yeah, I, a I remember that. Musician. I could not name a note. No. Yeah. I know the album was called Return of Bruno. I don't know if he did any others, and I... I'm not that interested, but um, yeah, same. he developed this with a friend of his who was a, a musician, and you know they like to fuck around, write music together, and then they came up with this kind of funny germ of an idea about a, an expert cat burglar. And are you sure they, they weren't playing it... like you know uh, Gerps Modern or or anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, if you're if you're looking for muscular nerdy guys, I think you're gonna want Vin Diesel. Or possibly Henry Cavill, who was just seen building a yeah, PC. Yeah, he's building that PC. <laughs> um, but in the case of uh, Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft, when they, de- when they developed this idea, um, I believe at the time, Bruce could basically call his own shots in Hollywood. You know, he's coming off Die Hard. Mm-hmm. People would, and I think they did Die Hard too, like really soon after that, and that was an even bigger hit. Yeah. So. Not as good, but call- what are you going to do? Right. Well, it was still a hit, and he can call his own shots, so he takes this movie to... I, um, it ended up with producer Joel Silver. Now, uh, Joel Silver... turning silver into lead. <laughs> and relevant to the movie. Yeah. Um, now, Joel Silver also produced Die Hard. He's produced The Matrix. Like, the guy is a really fucking successful producer. Also with a reputation for wild overspending. Um, and this was the thing that was going to get him into trouble on Hudson Hawk. I think for Die Hard 2, there was a massive bottleneck in the production because they needed to they needed real snow for a shot, and they were trying to find a place that had real snow that they could shoot yeah, in. Yeah, they're trying to crash real planes too. It's the it's the it's diametrically opposed to a lot of the movies that we talk about on the show, where it's make do filmmaking. This is. <laughs> basically whatever it takes just, filmmaking. Just, yeah, throw money at it. We'll 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 talk a little more about the kind of the speed bumps in the production okay. as we go on. But 
Um, so when you get a producer who's willing to make anything happen, and you have a star who probably can't be told no. Yeah, can do whatever he wants. You're gonna get. You're you're, you're gonna, gonna get, get a, a little bit of a. What? Oh no, I didn't know which. <laughs> you way might you're going get an it. accidental masterpiece. Yeah. No, but um, I and I think that um that element of basically being in charge in spite of not being the director um yeah i think that that is what kind of leads to and and this is a problem with hudson hawk because a lot of times the because don't you dare say a bad thing about hudson hawk well that's the thing because a lot of the negative publicity i think really colored people's opinions of it they just saw a a hollywood film that was wildly out of control like the budget like spiraling into the heavens the meta narrative yeah like the crew the the cast and crew just like going off to europe when they could have just as well shot in la blah 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 um and so when the movie finally hit theaters it received an incredibly negative reaction like almost disproportionate to the content of the movie and that's another thing that i'd like to talk about how dare you spend your own money to make this movie that i right well the same five dollars to see well, we, you know, we can pick that apart. But, right. you know, my point is, is that um, with Bruce, I think when he's just doing what Bruce wants to do, he gets like kind of insufferable. I could see that. I mean, you know, and he and I haven't hung out in a long time, but. <laughs> Your friend Bruce. Yeah. Um, God, like so... I can't remember the last. Wait a minute. Oh, I've never hung out with Bruce Willis. That's why. That's too bad. You should fix that. Yeah. Um. He's kind of a Republican, though, so good nah, luck. Nah, nah. Um, he is charming, but... Charming A-lister, he, got it. He's a little bit... He's a, He can be a little bit grating in this one, especially, like, like his... There are a lot of close-ups where he's just, like, mugging mm-hmm. to a ridiculous degree, and I'm just like, okay, like, can you turn it down, like, 12 fucking notches? Yeah, are you, you, are know, you like, even half as delighted with me as I am? <laughs> yeah, like, um, I think when... Like there, there's one shot where he's like in the box going through like the Vatican post mm-hmm. tunnel. Yes, because and he pokes his head up. Yeah, because the characters. Okay, guys, next stop. You need to be able to sneak into the Vatican library. You have all these resources at it. What's your plan? Well, uh, I don't. Know. Why don't we get like a hundred stamps? Okay. Yeah, yeah, hundred stamp, hundred stamps. Uh, all right, roll a d twenty. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> um. So there's a shot of him like poking his head out of the box mm-hmm. and like looking around, but he does it in this like bug-eyed, like overdone, like I am looking around in a comical way kind of thing. And it's like, okay, like I know you can do better than that, but I probably figure that you were at a point where it's like, you know, nobody's going to tell me to do the fucking shot again. And we're already way behind schedule. And, uh, Richard E. Grant like wants to kill himself because he hates being on this movie so much. So you know we got to move things along. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that true? Um, not not the suicidal ideation. Um, but <laughs> well, I mean to to an um, extent. There was a very glum mood on the set in general, um, and I found this out from uh, Richard E. Grant's um, autobiographical diary. It's called With Nails, and it's kind of uh. an amusing read. Um. He has a whole chapter on the making of Hudson Hawk, and um, he actually got to be very good friends with Sandra Bernhardt on the set, I think, because they spent a lot of time commiserating about not wanting to be there, which is kind of funny because, like, can you imagine, like, fucking being in Rome, like, 
on a movie set and you're like, I hate my life. I don't want to be here. I want to go home. That well, that's but, that's really instructive of the uh, what the atmosphere must have been. To to yeah. his credit, Richard E. Grant does not reveal an iota of that. No, he does he does fine, and it's very funny to read oh, his I'd say book. He does and, more than fine, but go on. <laughs> well, it's funny to read his book and see him. Um, and you know it's it's like in a diary form so mm-hmm. he expresses like a lot of his insecurities on like you know meeting other stars cuz this was right at the time when i think his career was picking up steam mm-hmm. um so he was he was getting bigger and bigger parts um he was just about to do uh the player for Altman oh yeah i remember watching um, that as a kid and like i did not get a single n- thing yeah. about that i i could see that yeah um you know what I said? When I was a kid, I loved Nashville. No, that's not true at all. <laughs> but that um, had um, the guy from uh, uh, Jacob's Ladder in it, you know, bringing it back around. Mm-hmm. Yes, the cherubic presence of Tim Robbins. Yes. But um, you see in the diaries a lot of Richard E. Grant kind of expressing his insecurities about, um, you know, not just meeting other stars, but his own performance. Like, and on this movie, I feel he was kind of like, I don't know what the, f- I guess I'll just like play it to the hilt and see what sticks. And it does end up working because, you know, he, he and Sandra Bernhardt are playing two like ridiculous comical over the top characters. Yeah. There there's unhinged mega, like mega maniacal multi-billionaires, like mm-hmm. a set on destroying the world's economy to their own benefit. I mean, a to their benefit and B possibly just as a goof. Yeah. So yeah, these people are insane. <laughs> yeah. And, and and yeah, like like he mentions too, you know, in his little character backstory, he says, you know, when you made your first billion at nineteen, and so it really gives a sense of just how completely like out of touch with reality these two people are. Like if you re- if you remade this, mm-hmm. you could um, you could depict those characters as elon musk and grimes oh yeah yeah that yeah well maybe they'll dress like that for halloween <laughs> and will they do the the leather and lingerie photo shoot too <laughs> uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie yeah it's it's funny is the photos getting slipped into the the presentation yeah <laughs> of, it's just richard e grant and like d- dressed like dr frankenfurter yeah it's, yeah, it's great. Okay, so so Richard E. Grant does not betray any of his misery during the shoot because this character is is played so expertly. And even his, um, it's not his introduction, but is it's when he, um, you know, when he, he meets Hudson Hawk or has him brought to him. Um, you know, this this isn't like um, uh, Fifth Element, you know, the hero and the villain do meet. Um, and, and that is literally the case because he introduces himself as saying... Uh, uh, saying, "What can I tell you? I'm the villain." Like he's, he's straight up, like he he is self aware enough in like this role that, or the character is self aware enough in the role to be like, "Yes, I am the villain. I am the person who is going to like double cross the CIA, who blows up innocent people, who you know, uh, who destroys centuries old artifacts by the greatest known artist." Um, you know, for this little scheme that I have, like he is completely aware of who and what he is. He is the villain. He doesn't. You don't have to bother with what his name is or where he came from. It's just like I am here 
to do villainous things, and I'm going to love every second of it. You know, today, post-drill and Adult Swim Mm -hmm. and all that other stuff, post-South Park, like, nobody would have batted an eye at this movie. Like, the tone would have been pretty plain to people, I think. Yeah. Like, 1991 was, like, a bit too soon. Well... Because... With the tone, the tone of Hudson Hawk is such that it's 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 like yes, it's action and like yes, it's comedy, but like the action is very silly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of like it dad humor jokes. Yes, yeah, there's like a lot of dad humor that like Bruce and his friend probably thought was an absolute panic, but you're kind of like, oof. And it's <laughs> uh, some yes and no. I mean, I, I have to call them. out. I have to call out like in the in the prologue in like Da Vinci's lab where he's doing all his amazing like you know historical things and he's got the uh like this is a total dad joke it, it's like out of a uh, a bugs bunny cartoon where he's got you know the the woman sitting for the mona lisa and he's got the whole thing done except for the mouth and then she oh, smiles yeah, at yeah, him yeah, and he's bit. got like this mouth of like awful crooked teeth and then he just kind of corpses at that he goes, Ugh. yeah he's just kind of like you know hand waves it it's just like i'll deal with this one later and i think i have a note um, about what that I took when I was watching the movie, which is something like, you know, the that bit mm-hmm. should have told you exactly what the tone of the movie. Oh is yeah, absolutely. Be. But apparently in 1991, it was just too confusing because you know people were expecting like diehard yeah. Bruce Willis. And another point that I wanted to make about the tone mm-hmm. is that there are some incredibly wild tone shifts in terms of violence. Yeah, it's but, wild in some places. But again, in a post-South Park era... Yeah, oh my God, know, they killed Kenny. Like, that's, yeah, that's a really do, strong tonal shift for this cartoon. Do you... You know, I think the part that made me laugh the hardest yeah. was when um, he's in... Uh, was when he's in the ambulance and those mafia goons are in there. Yeah. And he grabs... The, the tray of syringes? Of hypodermics and slams it into the guy's face and I cracked the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but again, I am I am post irony, and so I'm I'm delighted by uh, cartoonish violence. Yeah, it's it's violent and it's hilarious. And then when he's trailing the ambulance in the gurney, and there's the girl in the convertible, like, "Hey, guy, hey, Mister, are you gonna die?" Yeah, and that was. And if you look at uh, contemporaneous reviews of this movie, I remember one review where that was specifically called out as an incredibly unfunny joke. Oh, it, what? It, because like. Someone had died recently, and they're like, "Oh, it's too soon." Someone in the I world. I don't know. I don't. But this, it. I mean, the, I think uh, my only problem with it is that that's clearly a Valley Girl in New York. Well, she could be visiting. Uh, they had flight in 1991, Tim. Ugh, yeah, but I mean, why would why would you ever want to leave SFV for the East Coast? Every time I'm in the San Fernando Valley, I want to leave. So yeah, well, just because you aren't from there. Well, and. We'll just we'll just have to <laughs> we'll have to get past I'm not that. Deborah Foreman and Valley Girl, pining after Nicolas Cage with his chest shaved. I don't. Maybe she was there for like her own fish out of water experience. I don't know. But yeah, that that whole <laughs> set piece is great. The woman throws a cigarette out the window and he catches it. <laughs> he takes a puff and he's like, "Oh, menthol!" <laughs> just like this is this is not a movie that takes itself seriously. How could it? It's- yeah, it's it's fun. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, and and again, like going back to the role playing thing, it's like okay, um, all right, well, you've escaped the ambulance, cool. Um, you're on a bridge. Um, 
Okay, yeah, but there's a toll coming up, so you're gonna have to stop the toll. Like, well, can how much is the toll? I don't know, like fifty cents or something. Well, I would have change in my pocket, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I throw the change at the thing. Uh, roll a twenty-five. Okay, yeah, nat, nat twenty. Oh, I just critted. I, I yes! critted it. <laughs> and and at like that a... point, yeah, you're just like, yeah, okay, all right. The toll the the toll arm goes up, and you breeze through. Be like, yes, that is what this yeah, game like is he... about. That is that's true. He like fl- he flings the change at the toll thing like from thirty feet away, while yeah. like lying face down on a gurney. And it goes in, and the gate goes up. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's the comedic timing of the of it is just so rewarding. It's so perfect. It's so fun. Yeah, it's uh, and I don't know, like some of the jokes don't land. Like a few of them are Bruce are Willis's groaners, quipping but... does not land ever. Right, yeah, it, it that's uh, it's it's a little bit threadbare. The whole like, I'll, I th- I feel like there was something. I want to do public service. I want to teach the blind how to yodel. Like, all right. Yeah, it, well, that's the kind of thing. That, and um, paradoxically, that's the kind of joke that probably seemed funny in 1991. Yeah. Yeah, because like, yeah. oh, it's random. Yeah, like when he's, <laughs> he's reacting to like you know the goat cheese pizza on the menu. It's like okay, yeah, it's you know. It, the 90s and everything's all um sort of you know frou-frou and different because i mean you know oh yeah because um one of like one of the plot points in the movie is that he gets out of the joint and he finds out that his favorite bar has become gentrified and it's full of yuppies yeah yuppies goat cheese pizza yeah oh shit isn't even isn't there even a line where somebody's like oh i read it in newsweek about these guys or something probably yeah um and and similarly um uh, so then, uh, because because uh, Hawk on his day out of prison, on his first day out of prison, he's being pressed into another job um, by his parole officer. It was just this like just sweaty, just degenerate, you know, drunken piece of work. Um, and his connections to the mob, and who is you know the mob boss in this case? Of course, it's Frank Stallone. Yes. Yeah, and I know that you all know, but in case you don't, yes, he is the brother of Sylvester. Right. And it it is, just to to bring it back to the the role-playing thing, it's like where you introduce an NPC that, like, isn't that important, but, like, you kind of give him, like, you, like, half-ass his name, or, like, he does something that, like, the characters just latch onto, and then he becomes incredibly significant. Like, it's, it's like saying that you just cast a random person or they need to cast a random person for this role and be like, oh, we can get Frank Stallone for it. Like, okay, now this is, this is Frank Stallone the mobster. <laughs> and it's just, it, it, it isn't just a, a character. It's, you know, the, it's the actor playing the character and that's, you know, the fun of it. I believe that at the time, somewhat quixotically, Frank Stallone was trying to get his acting career going as well as a music career. Mm-hmm. Well, well, me, me and Norm Macdonald have some bad news for him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm told that he does yeah. have a very funny Instagram. Not intentionally funny, yeah. but a very funny Instagram. There, yeah, there's, there's no shortage of those. Um, <laughs> uh, and so then the movie moves on to, to their first heist. Um, you know, Hawk is pressed into it, but he's good at what he does. He's got uh, Danny Aiello, who you may remember from Jacob's Ladder, in pretty much the same role. <laughs> <laughs> so he's played a heavenly chiropractor 
um, he, a cat burglar and a racist pizzeria owner. Yeah. At this point. Yeah, so he's a very versatile actor. Oh, and then doesn't he also play Madonna's dad in the Papa Don't Preach video? That that sounds right. Probably. Yeah, yeah you can Google that. I don't know. Good um, for him. Just, yeah. Just doing, just doing Italian things, you know, being in a fucking video with Madonna. Yeah. Know? Hey, I'm acting here. um i i really like the editing in their heist because you know one of the conceits is that you know to in order to like stay on the same schedule they they sing a song because they know what the timing is of the song they know you know where they should be at certain times Um, i don't get this i don't get it either because how do you keep tempo Exactly. Like unless you're unless you have like a click track that you're both synced to, mm-hmm. like you're gonna fall out of out of tempo, right? How would Kit Kat know which card to use for the right occasion? <laughs> yeah, you're right, Jen. I, <laughs> it's it's just Hudson Hawk. I should really just relax. I know. But... Yeah. See. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If th- you know, that, that's probably why it didn't win the Oscar. It, Bruce Willis doesn't even have that good of a voice, too. Well, but that's, he really wants to sing. Yeah, like really badly. Maybe he should uh, put the acting thing on the back burner and form a band. Would you like to swing on a star? Mm-hmm. Carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are. Or would you rather be a cunt? <laughs> well, Jen, I'm afraid you don't have a choice in the matter. Um, so, I made my decision a long time ago, Tim. Clearly. Um, so they so they have their first height, heist, and it is cut to the music, which is... I, I really appreciate the editing in it. I, I like that it is cut to the, the song. Like, the way that, you know, um, you know shots change and locations change uh, throughout the scene. It's it's rhythmic. It's, you know, on tempo with, with the music, and it's enjoyable to watch. Hmm. Well, the editors on this, uh, one of them worked on, geez, some of the biggest movies of the 90s. Well, good for them. See, I uh, was right. Batman Returns, uh-huh. Nightmare Before Christmas, Ed Wood. Uh-huh. That's a legitimate one. Let me look at the that was That's Chris Lebenzon. Mm-hmm. The other guy, Michael Tronic, also worked on, oh, Streets of Wasn't Fire, that... Beverly Hills Cop 2, Midnight Run. Wasn't that a Daft Punk single? <laughs> you know better than I do. No, it's, never mind. Um, yeah, no, too, uh, too working. Oh shit! Ugh, poor guy worked on Bright. Hey, hey, I'm. He got paid all the same. Yeah, he got. I. He. You got to get that paper. But anyway, yeah. Shouts out. Shouts out to the editing and Hudson Hawk. Yeah. You. You. You did a good job. Yeah, they did. I. I really like the way it's edited. Um, the- it's a little bit too. This is. Um, I mean, it's and it's one of the reasons why I can't say this movie is an absolute unheralded masterpiece. It's not mm-hmm. a masterpiece. You know, there are bits that don't work. And the 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 cutesy poo like, oh, we do heists while we sing together. Mm-hmm. Bit, like, that's a little too cute for me. Okay. But, okay, Bruce, you're having a good time. You really love this idea. Like, let's see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah, and it yeah it is uh, it, it's a little odd, but it's not so jarring, you know, that it it takes you out of the the seriousness of the billionaire couple trying to um, <laughs> steal the secrets of alchemy from Leonardo da Vinci. Well, again, I, the, unless the, the CIA the or the, the Vatican movie, can prevent them. 
The tone of the movie was determined when we saw the Mona Lisa smile. Yes. Like, that's, it's like, okay, I know what you're going for with this movie. Yeah. It's going to be silly. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to cinema sin style nitpick, even though I just did about the tempo. Right. Whatever. Well, like, you know, you, you don't, I'm, you don't I'm letting like what you it don't go. Like. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm letting it go. Yeah, some of the other uh, just details, some of the other fun details um, in this that I would bring back to role playing um, when uh, you know, <laughs> I'm going to start telling a horse fact for every role playing uh, thing that you mention. Look, I I already indulged like all your asides about the minutia of like <laughs> production and other stuff, <laughs> and, like. <laughs> Like I've I've earned I, this. Um, I know I'm I know I'm soiling our movie podcast with tales of movie production. No, no, it's not tales of but... movie production. It's stories <laughs> that don't go anywhere. But one of the other, but yeah, tying it back to role playing ever so briefly. Um, what, what story did I tell that didn't go anywhere? I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. Oh, so dick. So the the butler whose name I don't remember, which is probably not important, um, is. After he uh, after he turns the horse over, hey Jen, there's a there's a toy horse in this movie. You would like it. Um, he turns the horse over to him, and you know, so uh, I'm gonna it, write a horse role playing game for you. Okay, and you have to play it. Okay, uh, and um, uh, yeah, and then uh, you know, Hudson Hawks, uh, sleazy parole officer, turns the horse over to him, uh, gets his throat cut for the uh, for his troubles, um, and then uh, the and and the the butler uh, heads back on the Concord because it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, like there aren't any rules in this world. Like you can just do whatever you want. Like if you if you take regular flights on the Concord, that can just be like you know a, a matter of fact thing. It, it, in the same way that well, like, I mean, if you have the if you have the ten thousand dollars for the ticket, I mean, what is what's it take like three hours to go across the ocean as opposed to like eleven? Yeah, like the, I'd fucking do it. Yeah, that's a cool plane. Yeah, chump change exactly. It's it's that it's you know TV tropes rule of cool. It's like, is this a cool thing to do? Sure, let's do it. Like, would it be cool to just be like, yeah, I take the Concorde like people take a you know a coach commuter flight. Like that's kind of awesome. Similarly, there's a um, there's a an unfortunate um, joke, which you know I, I can't say it's unfortunate in that it hasn't aged well, but it's one of those things that was like unpleasant at the time, or maybe I'm just a sensitive person. Um, where uh, George Kaplan, the CIA uh, handler, mentions that um, we we blow up space shuttles for breakfast, as like you know just all in the course of their work, and you know the Challenger was maybe what was it like seven years before that and even still you're just like Ooh, that, yeah, that's not a good feeling but it does give you a sense of what what these people are about i submit that it mm-hmm. is possibly the most accurate portrayal of the cia committed to film fair enough yeah like absolute ghouls but also oddly bumbling yeah, yeah, that seems. Yeah, I mean, from what you've told me, that does seem accurate. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so so bumbling ghouls. And- oh God, that's that. My, I think my favorite line in the entire movie is when James Coburn says uh, he's there in Rome. He's looking around the yes. plaza and reminiscing, and he says, "I did my first barehanded strangling here." I didn't know you're so <laughs> sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, that's so fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. There's a lot of that in this movie, and we're introduced to, you know, the um, you know, the the they do the old CIA new CIA thing. The new CIA is you know a bunch of kids, you know, people in their thirties, um, named after candy bars. Named after candy bars, and again, that's the sort of thing that. You know, if you're a GM who's pressed for time and you didn't think of what you're going to name these people or what their theme was, or maybe you were just like, you know, stopping at the 7-Eleven after school and you're like, I need a theme. I got to come up with a theme for what this like, you know, crack unit of, you know, CIA operatives and you know killers is going to be. Be like, well, what would a good code name theme be? Like, I don't know, candy bars. Like, perfect. Run with it. Or chlamydia. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine what's like being called chlamydia for a year? <laughs> You know, you've almost got me taking the 20-sided die pill and wondering <laughs> if Bruce Willis is a, a tabletop gamer. It's it's just that it is in so much of the same spirit as what I remember these fun games being that it's, I mean, it's the only thing I can really compare it to. No, nothing else compares to that same spirit of that, like, anything goes action-adventure comedy. Because, yeah, you want to play a role-playing game, you know, being serious and, like, you know, thinking that your your actions are important, but then after a while, when you know your actions don't have consequences, thing or you know you've kind of been there and done that, things start start to get a little silly. Or, or just, do you feel yeah. that that might be a consequence of a time when money flowed freely and anything went on the set because you know what Joel Silver says or what Bruce says goes. Yeah, it could very well be. I mean, you know, they, they might have just been living in a bubble that to one extent or another reflected, yeah, like their real life reflected what they were doing. Like, yeah, let's all fly off to Italy and goof off. Yes. I mean, I've never been in that situation, so I couldn't tell you, but. Yeah, and I um, this was right around a time when um, going by the contemporary press stories that there was starting to be an uneasiness in Hollywood about um, budgets going up and up and up yeah. on movies um, to to the point where Jeffrey Katzenberg actually wrote a memo which was supposed to be for I think um, only for a few eyes within I forget if he was with Disney at the time but um, he wrote a memo in 1991 right around the time uh, Hudson Hawk came out in theaters that uh spending on movie budgets was getting like wildly out of control and like what kind you know basically what kind of a return are we getting for like this outlay of money and you know like a lot of the smaller more interesting films are kind of being pushed aside um you know we're sinking like <laughs> and at the time like i think hudson hockett um may have topped out around 60 or 70 million dollars which was absolutely outrageous unheard of at the time um yeah that is like just, a single johnny depp paycheck yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, we talked in the last episode when we mentioned Carol Co. Pictures that uh, because that particular company spent so much on sweetening the pot for major stars like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, not Frank Stallone, Sly Stallone and Schwarzenegger. I don't, I don't know. Maybe Frank Stallone got it. You know, got some. Points. That would be so fucking funny if Frank Stallone got like twelve million for Hudson Hawk. Is that like two scenes? For <laughs> It's like, hey, it was, it was a different time in Hollywood, you know? Like, yeah. uh, money was flowing like wine. Um, <laughs> but uh, this memo that Katzenberg wrote um, ended up leaking 
um, to the larger Hollywood community and the press, and it became like a big topic of conversation. Um, you can kind of learn things about an era from whatever moral panic is going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, not to did they um, invoke Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> well, somebody somebody saw Bruce Willis. <laughs> rolling a d20 and they're like oh my god oh it's happening again occult shit but it does seem quaint now to be like oh like this uh this movie ran to 60 or 70 million dollars i think joel silver claimed to the la times that they were like no no we kept it to about 44 mil um you know now movies can cost a hundred million dollars or more like Mm -hmm. god knows what cameron spent on I mean, I'm sure there are numbers for it. I don't know what he spent on Alita. I don't know what he's spending on fucking, like, the Avatar sequels. But... You um, mean, like, in total or per year? Because sh- shouldn't those be, like, five years old at this point? I have no fucking idea. And I, I don't really care because the first Avatar was a piece of shit, so... It, it simply was. Yeah. But um, this was a factor which contributed to the negative reception for the movie there was a perception that this was a case of egos and big hollywood producers just running absolutely out of control doing whatever they wanted um and so people i think came to it with like a really negative impression which and i often find that with movies that i hated like 10 or 20 years ago like do you have this experience tim where you're, you saw a movie and you're like, God, what a fucking piece of shit. This is everything that's wrong with fucking movie making today. And then mm-hmm. you see it years later and you're like, eh, this is fine. You know, it's like the, the, the fire has gone out of your belly and you've moved on to hating other things. <laughs> I want to find new things to hate. I don't, why would I go back and watch kids a second time? Like, what do I care? <laughs> I, I don't know. You, Maybe. Uh, are, are we going to go back and watch that again and be like, no, well, let me tell you, like, this is really a, th- a thought-provoking piece about a kid who gets AIDS and his asshole <laughs> Well, friends. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of kind of the, um, the really big movies that were hitting theaters in the, in the 90s. Oh, like um, that Jurassic Park. Oh, so awful. Well, I was 13 when I saw that. Did anyone see that I was 13 when I saw it, so it was the most awesome movie ever made. Yeah, I know. I'm being sarcastic. So, I, no shit. Oh, am I? That's a it's a very rare thing for you to do, Tim. You're not you're not usually such. Mm, yeah. Weird, In the I know. Thirty seven yeah, years I've known you. Yeah, that that's the point. It feels like longer. Uh. Um <laughs> Um But my point is that, you know, if, uh I remember the time thinking a movie like, you know, Demolition Man was like really stupid. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you watch it later and you're like, ah, this is funny. It's fine. It's funny. Well, I mean, you keep know, in mind a too, little... a lot of the time when you're watching these movies, you're, you're a young, stupid kid with stupid right. opinions. <laughs> and then when you grow up, you're like, man, I was dumb. What the hell was I thinking? I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'm just it isn't filtering that I'm a... it through my own experience or what you yeah. know i mean it's it's not that i'm um gonna go back and watch movies that i hated at the time first off why would i and then be like ah this isn't so bad it's more like you know am i gonna like you know i i think uh uh geez what is it <laughs> not, 
Not Ben Curtis. Not Ian Curtis. Curtis. Adam Curtis? No. <laughs> Curtis Hansen? No. I I like Curtis Armstrong. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, I think he's a great character actor. Um, I was way but, off. Yeah, but were I to go back and watch, like, Revenge of the Nerds 2, maybe I wouldn't like it as much. Maybe. Now, as I did when, you know, I was 10. Maybe I wouldn't like Hot to Trot as much. Yeah, Hot, Hot to Trot is perhaps not aged you know, the movie well. With Bobcat Goldthwait and... John Candy is the voice of the talking horse. Right. Honestly, that movie rules. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think that I wouldn't like the same stuff now as I would when I was a literal child? (laughs) I, um, that's a good question. Yeah. Have you seen Night Court since the 80s? Have you seen what? Have you seen Night Court since the 80s? (laughs) Uh, no, but I'm, I believe that that show is going to hold up. I'm afraid to revisit it personally. I, I just want it to remain perfect in my mind. Right. Well, I mean that, like Marky Post tits, you know. Oh, I know. Like I don't. When did those show up? I uh, guess when uh, I was about thirteen. <laughs> remember when she showed up as the mom in There's Something About Mary? Uh, vaguely. Yeah. That that anyway. is probably a movie that if I rewatch now, I would feel differently about it. I don't know. I I saw it a lot when it came out and i thought it was funny so remember it's still like wayne's world is still funny to me but like if you didn't see it in 1992 like is it still funny uh maybe uh i don't know uh, because because really it's it's the same thing where it's like that uh yeah snl is kind of a generational show where it's like whatever whoever was popular at the time is, is like that's the best version of it Right. Where, like, you know, we would say that it's, like, you know, Phil Hartman and Chris Farley and, like, Chris Rock and, you know, mm-hmm. people like that. And our parents would be, like, no, it's it's Bill Murray and Eddie Murphy and, you know, Steve Martin, who's never actually on the show but hosted enough. Um, and then kids these days, because I'm old, I am allowed to say that. Um, you know, they'd say that it's, like, Annie Samberg or, like, Kristen Wiig or whoever the other ones I don't remember are. Will Ferrell. Yeah. And, I mean, they're... Yeah, well, 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 Farrell, I think, think it's overlap. I mean, like, what I'm, the point wait, is that... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does that mean that there is some, like, just sick and depraved individual whose favorite era of SNL was, like, the Gene Dumanian era, like, in 1981? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, there's someone who, you know, who feels sad whenever they mention, you know, Charles Rocket dying or... Well, I feel sad about Charles Rocket, but then, because he went on to bigger and better things. Right. Well, then that's that's it. You're just that generation. Before he cut his own throat in a field, which is one of the most metal ways I can think of to commit suicide. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you commit to it. <laughs> you gotta commit if you're cutting your own throat. Well, yeah, I can't do this mamby-pamby, you know, stomach full of pills kind of thing. Like, you gotta mean it. <laughs> Trigger warning, suicide. Oops, too late. Right, right. So, so I mean, I like everything about the movie, but I think the line about blowing up the space shuttle is in poor taste. Well, they didn't know that the Columbia was going to blow up, Tim. No. It, hmm. <laughs> what, if, what if they made it instead a joke about, like, uh, fomenting a genocide in Indonesia? Which, 
the CIA did do. Uh, then, then Jen would be like, "No, that's very funny." Yeah. Like, You're goddamn right, I would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you <laughs> I'd would, be like, "It's funny because it's true." Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't actually <laughs> laugh, but it, but you'd, you'd elbow like people on either side of you and be like, "I got that. I got that joke." <laughs> do you do you know it's a reference to an actual thing? And the people next to you I, would be like, "Look, I'm just waiting to for like you know ghost to start. I just snuck in here." <laughs> I I did laugh at the space shuttle line, but because it's fucked up, you know. Yeah, it's it like, is. That is a fucked up thing is, to say. It is like capital E evil. Like it yeah. is something that you would put in like a the put CIA. In, what's that? Like the CIA. Right. Yeah. Well, that's capital CIA, not capital evil, but whatever. Um, <laughs> doesn't even make sense. But yeah, I mean, it is just so like cartoonishly evil. Although if, yeah. I don't think you could show a cartoon even on you know Adult Swim about the space shuttle blowing up but what do i know i don't know if you do it in a funny way i don't know oh, yeah brick and morty they might do it yeah <laughs> i'm pickle krista mcauliffe <laughs> god jen <laughs> <laughs> hey morty i turned myself into a pile of ash <laughs> <laughs> see it's funny. funniest thing i've ever seen yeah uh, so <laughs> uh but to bring, to bring it back on track a little bit, um, you know, this is the point where we start getting into the plot. Yeah. And I don't understand the plot, but I don't really care because it's not the point. Okay. Well, do I look, I can lead you through. I can hold your hand through the plot of this just as I did with Crocodile Fury. Um, I mean, it well, is. That's it, a th- you have to do that with every movie, Tim. <laughs> let's be real. I'm the one with ADHD here. That's true. Yeah. Um, so the Mayflowers, uh, you know, Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt. And Sandra Bernhardt is also great in this because she is just like, she is incredibly uh, like rich, completely amoral, and just like, just, just pugly. Like, <laughs> like. Just, it's quite a face. Yeah, it is. Which is, she's perfectly cast because it's that sort of thing where it's like money can't buy class. Can you believe that face ate out Madonna? Yeah, I mean, if I was Madonna, I'd want that thing on the other side of my body. Like, as far from where my eyes are as possible. I mean, you know, she she worked with Scorsese, and she acted with De Niro. So, you mm-hmm. know, more power to her. No, I mean, yeah, no no, no, uh, no disrespect to Sandra. She's she's carved out her career on her own terms, certainly. Yeah, she's a good friend of that <clears throat> guy from Withnail and I. Um, yes. Yeah, but but I mean, well, me, I think I think the trauma of the being on the set of Hudson Hawk is what bonded them. Yeah, so. but I mean, just like <laughs> so, we're introduced to them, and they are like just ugly, tacky, amoral, obscenely rich people. But I repeat myself. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's where you learn about you know the ridiculous you know plan that they have, you know. <laughs> destroying um you know prices cultural artifacts in the pursuit of money which you know again it's exactly what you would expect um so that that's where these three heists come from to you know rebuild this um this not metallurgy and not necromancy alchemy alchemy yeah so which apparently wasn't a thing that da vinci was into but again doesn't matter. Oh, are you saying this movie's not historically accurate? I, I am saying that, and I'm right. saying it doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. So it's yeah. So the these three heights to rebuild the components for this alchemy machine, um, and that leads you know Hudson Hawk to meet Annie McDowell's character. Um, <laughs> not a fan, huh? 
Okay, I will say this. Okay. I've never been a fan of Annie McDowell. I think she's legitimately a terrible actress. Uh-huh. Like, just like an attractive block of wood. She was better in this than I remembered her being. Okay, this must be what you're talking about. I mean, you know, maybe afterwards we can talk about it. What, what do you mean? No, I mean, that's how she gave this one weird line read in Groundhog Day. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I forget yeah, if it was like, walk or talk, but she she, she said was, the L in that word that nobody says. She was so huge at the time, like she, you know, she did um, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, and then um, she had another big hit a couple years later with uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I just never ever understood the appeal. Like she's attractive, mm-hmm. but it's like there's nothing there. Yeah, she's all right. Like maybe well, that's she, it. She's like okay in that. I will. Yeah. I, I'll give her that. I'll, she's okay. Yeah, she is like okay. But um, yeah. but yeah. So she she is a double agent working with the CIA, but um, working for the Vatican, which typical. Yeah, again, it's it's one of those things where it's like okay, so yeah, it's it's rich people on one side, you know, it's the government on the other. Like those are two normal forces. What's like a third it all angle? Fucking we can... goes back to the Vatican. Yeah, it's like what's a third angle we can throw in? How about the um, boundless the resources and unlimited power of the, of the Holy Roman Church? Um, there and yeah, just there's a scene of the two of them in in the subway after he's you know. Uh, planning his his second heist to steal Da Vinci's uh, Codex, a book of all his work. Um, we're we're there in the the Vatican mail subway because you know you can they do have their own post office and you can get a postcard sent home stamped with Vatican City. Um, and uh, there's a nice visual gag as the two of them are talking of like two guys like carrying a cross like wrapped up in like packing material. It's it's yeah. because it's a church, you know. Yes. And you got to send crosses here and there. <laughs> just Catholicism as er- is weird, Just man. as everyone else has their regular mail, you know, the Vatican has their Vatican mail. Oh, and isn't there, there's like a, a, a brief visual gag with uh, a Pope, too. Yeah, yeah. After he, he steals the book and he's, um, uh, and, you know, Hawk is escaping through a window in the ceiling you know, he's like making his escape and he, you know, knocks over an, uh, an, an aerial and it cuts to the Pope watching Mr. Ed. And, like, <laughs> That's the, right. The pic- he's watching Mr. Ed dubbed in Italian. Yeah. <laughs> and the picture goes on the fritz and he starts hitting it with his, you know, holy scepter. <laughs> <laughs> and then Terry Jones dressed as the bishop runs in. <laughs> <laughs> we was too late. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh,. Yeah, so, yeah, we found out... <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah. So I was we... thinking about the bishop. <laughs> Don't say the kid's name! And then they just keep cutting to the credits. <laughs> yeah, back that negative reviews at the time, too. People are just like, the, the shows keep starting over, and the, the bishop is not very effective in his job. I don't get it. Is it supposed to be funny? So this is, It's a very negative portrayal of the clergy. Yeah. And and yeah, it's funny too in that um, you know Annie McDowell. I guess nobody, you know what? Like, I guess because this movie flopped, like not enough Catholics saw it that they could get like all fucking offended about it. Well, they, I didn't. I didn't find anything about that. Yeah, they were they were still riding that high from Life of Brian. <laughs> so. Oh, this was after uh, this was after Last Temptation of Christ. So maybe they were all tired from all the picketing. Could be. Yeah, they just didn't have time for it. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, yeah. So. 
anime talent. And then, like, because, you know, she's, you're kind of uh, playing both sides with, you know, the Vatican and with, you know, Hudson Hawk. Then she goes to, like, you know, this this crucifix to, to like, kind of make this, you know, silent confession to herself. And then it lights up and starts talking back to her because it's the microphone of, of like, her handler. Who's <laughs> then, yeah, she talks to him and... And he's like adamant. He's like, we aren't gonna get rolled by some schmuck from New Jersey. <laughs> like, this is the Catholic cardinal. Yeah, that's right. He yeah. calls him a putz or something. No, he calls him a schmuck. Like, literally. Schmuck, yeah. yeah. And just like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, there is uh, from watching the from watching the DVD commentary of Hudson Hawk. Uh, one of the things that they mentioned is a bit of the local color in the picture, and that was um. The extras that they hired to play security guards in the you know codex theft scene. Um, there's a shot of one of them where he's like pouring out this spaghetti dinner out of a thermos. Oh yeah, yeah, which is just like kind of. An <laughs> I unusual... laughed at that too. Yeah, it's it's kind of an odd thing, but it's like no, this is just like this is what the guy brought for his lunch. And just wait, like... the extra brought that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah, this is. <laughs> I literally thought that it was a joke that they put in, where it's like, "Oh, you know, what would an Italian security guard like get out of his thermos? Spaghetti, spaghetti." <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it works on both those levels, I guess, because seeing it, you're like, "Well, that's odd," and also well, it could I be like, "I certainly will never feel bad about stereotyping Italians ever again." Yeah, I know they really are like because that because they're they're cartoons. Yeah, I'm I mean, sorry. Yeah, just you know, <laughs> you break your mama's heart. They're all exactly like NYC Guido voice. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> um, yeah, there's At least just, the ones in Staten Island. Yeah. The, <laughs> there, there are just so many great lines in this, not just the space shuttles one. Um, uh, the Pope warned me never to trust the CIA. Yes, I literally <laughs> wrote that down. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like so many more before that that we just kind of glossed over. Just like so many just funny <laughs> uh, menthol. The butler did it. Uh, yeah, there's a um, there's a bit in a um. The the guy on the donkey is just a guy on a donkey. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit in uh, an L.A. Times interview from the time with Bruce Willis and Joel Silver, which I think they did as a little as an attempt at damage control, mm-hmm. um, uh, to kind of um, debunk, maybe not very well, uh, some of the uh, opinions that had already been forming about this movie before it came out, and there was a thing that. Bruce Willis said um, in response to a story that they had a very bad test screening for this movie. Mm-hmm. And he frames it this way. Well, that was not a screening at all. It was a test audience for us. That's, that's a test screening, dude. Out of 100 right. jokes, we knew only 60 of them were going to work, but we didn't know which. So we showed it to an audience to help us with that. Well, it's a, that's a really good batting average. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a low to, test um, score, but it's a good batting average. Not to malign this movie that you and I both enjoyed, or yeah. the the Titanic producing talents that brought it to us, but that yeah. is kind of a wild way to go about <laughs> writing a comedy for movie audiences. You know, it's like a throw everything at the wall and see what sticks approach. Yeah, we we don't know what's going to work, but something's going to work. Like it would be like like if we. You and I tried to make a movie out of the dumb jokes that we tell each other via text all day. Oh, Jeffrey like, the Squirrel, maybe. Like, we would 
laugh our asses off and everyone would be like these people are sick or something yeah be like the the, this is, is just like them. this is just cat noises back and forth this was yeah this, like there's not even it's a story funny here. <laughs> it's a cat and it's exploding it's funny yeah like he hits the button and then he blows up like a cat <laughs> would not do like do i have to explain it to you god <laughs> so yeah there were there were a lot of lines that don't work um there's you know a great heist energy to the scene of um, you know, Bruce Willis, uh, you know, ripping off the the codex and still making it to his date with Annie McDowell. Um, you know, there's a little bit of stagecraft <laughs> in there where he blows the chicken feathers out of his hand. Um, it's 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 all fun. Um, yeah, what a charm. Uh, and meanwhile, they're all being you know sort of um, surveilled by the you know new CIA kids. Um, the them of course being you know Snickers. A an actor that is he's he's kind of got like hey, it's that guy face like you don't see him as much as you would like to see him maybe like he and William Forsyth kind of canceled each other out but he's he's got like a, a pretty boy face you're like why don't we see more of him um, there's Almond Joy who um, apparently is someone but I only misidentified her as an extra in Jacob's Ladder um, there is Kit Kat who uh, later was played by David Caruso. You can make the noise. And uh, then there's uh, Butterfinger, um, who uh, he's like, he's this like beefy remedial, um, like, you know, education uh, lunkhead that they have is basically the muscle. He's this, you know, giant of a man with, you know, the the mind of a child. Um, Yeah, apparently um, he's uh, Andrew Brin. Mm-hmm. Brniarski, he's a actor and a bodybuilder. Fits, yeah, you know, explains why he's cast. But with like, because of the physique and like his weird, he's got a mullet. Like long, like yeah, his like long ramen mullet. He literally looks like any like WWF jobber from like yeah, yeah. He's got like the same. He's got that that Hogan hair. Um, he's a little bit like the um, the undermining best friend. Um, can't we just rock uh, guy from Soul Taker? <laughs> but you know, just like swole as. I, I mentioned these characters in particular because they're surveilling, you know, Hawk and Annie McDowell's character, who I didn't bother to learn her name. Um, Anna. Yeah. Uh, so they're they're watching this whole scene, and there's the one joke that is completely like tonally inappropriate for the entire movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> where it is, um, it's uh, Snickers, uh, Almond Joy, and Butterfinger sitting in this like laughably tiny Italian car. <laughs> Like watching watching the goings on, and you know Snickers is like, "What are they doing up there?" And and Butterfinger's like, "You want me to go up and rape them?" Jesus Christ, that wasn't. That, I watched. Okay, this um for our listeners. You're like, are you like, did I imagine that? For our listeners, this was for this movie is currently available for free on Roku uh, via the Pluto TV channel. You don't have to pay a dime to see it, but you got to sit through a couple commercials. I swear mm-hmm. that was cut in the version that I saw. Because okay. I don't remember that joke, and also like, it, it had it. It must have been cut because I know I would have laughed my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's on the DVD, which you like, know, I could be uh, wrong. you know, possession is nine tenths of the law. I could be wrong. Like maybe but, I was taking a note at the time, but I do not remember that joke. Anyway, like uh, yeah, I the, I remember that distinctly because TV it, and let me know if it's actually in there. Right. Well, yeah, that's that. That for me is the one joke where I'm just like. That's not fucking appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to go up and rape them? 
Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's so wrong. Yeah, that, just, like, of course, it's making me laugh. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's... <laughs> Yeah, just one of those lines you're just like <laughs> the whole well, the movie you know, just it, like turns into irreversible. <laughs> like yeah, Bruce Willis yeah, it's gets just, his head you know, we, bashed we have, in with a fire extinguisher and Annie McDowell is raped for fifteen minutes. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, it's yeah, it 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 takes a, a hard left into the accused. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, less uplifting somehow. Right? Yeah, I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, Jesus. So. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's the one line of just like, Ugh. but but anyway, it leads it leads to funnier things. Um, the jeez, uh, I'm skipping over a, a lot of it because you know whatever. There, uh, surprise, there's another double cross. Um, wow, the guys who wrote this must have been sick fucks. Yeah, um, oh, with all the double crossing. Well, um, speaking of, um, one of them was Daniel Waters, who worked with the director uh, Michael Lehman on Heather's. The Immortal Heathers. Another yeah. movie where people just did not fucking get the tone. Um, right, yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, and the other one was... Are you ready for that's this, That's a tough Tim? needle to thread. Go for it. Stephen E. D'Souza. Do you recognize that name? Uh, is he related to Alfred E. Newman? Well, not only did he write one of your favorite movies, Die Hard, he was also mm-hmm. uh, the story editor on... Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Gemini Man. Oh, it all comes back around, yeah. Exactly. We cannot escape Gemini Man or Riding with Death. You know, we should really do like two episodes about Gemini Man and maybe just mash them together. And- <laughs> <laughs> do you think we could get Ben Murphy on the show? Uh, what is he doing? There's, uh, there. I can't possibly remember what it was like working on Gen- Gemini Man. Too many quaaludes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> 70s. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so there's more more double crossing. There's another um, element that needs to be gotten, and there is a nice um, sort of uh, you know th- this movie you know really helped, it, it prefigured and I think it informed No Country for Old Men um, because <laughs> this was a very influential film. <laughs> right? Yeah, it was. Well, because here's the thing: like we've had you know th- this it's that rule of threes, you know, um, coffee, tea, tear gas, um, <laughs> where it is. Uh, uh, Hawk steals the first thing. Hawk steals the second thing. And we have the third one. Hawk refuses. Um, through some chicanery with uh, Tommy Five Tone, he manages to escape the Mayflowers, who have been behind this whole string of robberies this whole time. Um, uh, the, the CIA, uh, surprisingly, is there to apprehend them, which, whatever, I'm not sure what their motives are. But... But now that Hawk is no longer there to steal the final piece, the you know the model of the helicopter, um, they're like, okay, well their plan is foiled, and it's like, well, no. Instead, they just go in there. Um, they have their goons going guns blazing, and you know the CIA just shoots up the place, shoots up the the Louvre, and just goes in by force and takes it. <laughs> like no, no subtle fancy cat burglary, you know. Um, uh, you know, deft touch kind of things. They just go in and kill a couple of guards and steal it. Again, just which is just like the CIA would do. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 a uh, metaphor you know, it's, for it's, how the CIA acts in other countries, just with yeah, total disregard and violence. 
Right, yeah, it's it's you know it's the Gordian knot, I and mean, it is thankfully you know not shown on screen in the same way that you know Annie McDowell's potential rape is not shown. <laughs> or, um, or Bruce Willis. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- so th- this movie, you know, it 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 forgoes a rape scene. It forgoes scenes of um, you know mass murder. Um, but at any rate, the CIA ends up with a final piece, and they're like, well. We need Annie McDowell for the last part because she's an expert on whatever this machine is, you know, knowing all the stuff about Da Vinci. Um, but we don't need Hawk or Tommy anymore, so we'll just kill them off. And this movie being what it is, um, if you were flipping through, you know, the section of weapons and equipment in the back of your, you know, DMs guide, <laughs> and you're like, okay, yeah, 45, 38, whatever. How about this thing, this, these poison darts that paralyze people? How about a um, timed grenade launcher with a suction cup on it? Yeah, my character uses that. <laughs> I gotta say, it is a little bit of a tortured setup, but um, Bruce Willis and Anna McDowell making a futile attempt to kiss each other from a distance of one foot while they're paralyzed yeah. is, ex- is extremely funny. Yeah, it's it's silly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I as a, you know, teenage nerd, like I just am a fan of the, you know, suction cup grenade launcher and a golf bag. And that and <laughs> Snickers has the outfit to match. <laughs> like it's it's just, you know, it's there, how it's how much you commit to the idea. There I think was is what a sells lot of it. there was a lot of care put into the costuming and production design of this movie. I mean, True. obviously, they're doing a lot of, um, like, uh, location shooting where they're literally shooting, like, in fucking Italy or, you know, Prague for some of the scenes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's uh, the the Mayflower's headquarters is in that famous uh, example of fascist architecture in Rome. Right. I forget the and name of the me, building, but you'll know and, when you see it. It was in the movie Titus. Yeah, and, and me being me, when I was in Rome, I'm like, I gotta find that building. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta see this cool fascist building. Yeah, no, no. I'm like, I gotta see that building from Hudson Hawk. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, me not realizing I was on foot and this was a city where I didn't speak the language. Yeah, it didn't really happen. Like, <laughs> it's, we uh, barely had the internet at the time. I mean, there is a lot of stuff. As I recall from the time I was in Rome, there is a lot of stuff like really close together. So I assume you at least got to see some cool shit, if not the fascist building. Yeah, I mean, you see all the old stuff. <laughs> All that old shit they just left lying around. Yeah, I know. Hey, yeah, there's a bunch of rocks laying everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're called ruins, Hudson. It made me want to go back to Rome really bad. You should go. You should leave the country for another one. <laughs> That's I your right as an American. Yeah. No. And I bet right. I won't get to drink my cappuccino either. Yeah. Yeah, they keep coming back to that. It's a running gag. <laughs> Is uh, Danny Aiello's character called Tommy Five Tone because he's really into pentatonic scales? Uh, you know they didn't cover that in the um, in the director's commentary, but let me look up Wikipedia and see. Now, imagine if they did a heist like to some like you know pentatonic like like Strindberg or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's hard to sing. Yeah, a little bit. I'm not smart or educated enough to make a be- a better. Uh, music nope. joke would it be, it'd be like a little meta if they used like john cage's 433 like well it's four minutes <laughs> and 333 seconds <laughs> you and know, you don't have to sing any of what's, it what's the time signature on uh john cage's 433 uh could be like 19 17ths for all i know 
<laughs> of course, you you talking about you know weird time scales and like 1917s and like you know. Meanwhile, like David Gilmore is like rubbing his nipples, thinking about it. <laughs> so, did you ever listen to like early Genesis, like when Peter Gabriel was still with the band? Uh, <laughs> this is this is payback for my role playing game stories, isn't it? Yes, I'm going to tell you all about Apocalypse and Nine Eighths. Okay. No, you're not, because I'm taking off my headphones. Uh, <laughs> so, so this, so you think, you know, could this be the end? Is this gonna be like No Country for Old Men, where the, you know, main character dies partway through the story? Um, is this the end for, you know, Hudson and 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 Tommy? Um, no, because you know they they come off of their paralysis drugs because you know Almond Joy didn't quite figure, you know, maybe Tommy's body weight, I guess. Um, Trip, trip snickers the um grenade launcher goes off ricochets and gets stuck to his head so you know his head's gonna get blown off which is that same sort of comically gruesome thing that you know was in the kind of role-playing games that i was playing at the time well yeah and it's like looney Tunes shit it's it's funny yeah like i want a strong weapon how about the, okay get the thing that was 1d4 times 10 it's like okay well that's enough to one shot someone be like yeah i want to use that you know what it's like it's like the mini guns in split second yeah yeah <laughs> that they just happen to have in the police locker yes An- yeah, another it's... another criminally misunderstood movie yeah one of those movies that you know you just kind of go with it if you're on you know if you're on along for the ride then it's it's that much more enjoyable um so this finally leads up to, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the final confrontation at, um, you know, Da Vinci's like laboratory castle area, which is also a cool scene, a cool location. Um, you know, uh, you know, Tommy and, and Hawk blow up sections of that with the, uh, with the grenade launcher. <laughs> Just a, they have a grenade launcher in a golf bag because how else are you going to carry it? <laughs> I the, mean, if you, uh, if you don't have, like, a bespoke specialized grenade launcher bag, I would imagine that a golf bag would do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 just a, uh, you know, it's a hair's breadth from, you know, from Rodney Dangerfield having a, you know, an FM radio in his golf bag. <laughs> He's like, yeah, hey, everyone's going to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> so... This is where yet another double cross happens. Um, this is where uh, the Mayflowers double cross the CIA, and the person who finds out about that is um, uh, is Butterfinger. You know, uh, poor guileless Butterfinger, where he gets where he gets shot four times in the chest with a crossbow by um, by Sandra Bernard's character. has has enough strength to to walk over to George Kaplan. And I love like the authenticity in in the line that he says. He says, "Coach, I think the Mayflowers set us up." <laughs> <laughs> like, like he never fully grokked that he was in the CIA. He <laughs> 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 just he never really progressed past that like junior year of high school. <laughs> I I just love that you know truth of that character. Mongo only pawn in Game of Life. Yes, <laughs> yeah, same same story. <laughs> um, so let's see. So they, uh, yeah, they kidnapped Anna, whatever her name is. Um, but you know, she's she reacted badly to the paralysis serum. 
I assume because uh, she's smaller than Danny Aiello and Bruce Willis. Right. So it's yeah. having a... See, this movie does make sense. Yeah, see? Of course it, she would have all... a different reaction to the drugs. Of course, yeah. I mean, it's all it has its own internal logic. Um, you know, and this part, I remember being just gratingly unfunny the first time I watched it, but for some reason, uh-huh. like, her acting high and, like, speaking nonsense and then saying, I must speak to the dolphins, made me laugh this time around. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what does what the color blue taste like? But I <laughs> And I, I also love, you know, Sandra Bernhardt's just, like, ex- exasperation with it. Like, this is supposed to be torture, not therapy. <laughs> oh, you know, like we a, haven't even talked a, about Another great Bunny. line. Oh, yeah, the dog. Yeah. There was a, um, a, if you believe Richard E. Grant's account, this little, uh, looks like a wire-haired terrier, uh, mm-hmm. Bunny, the companion of the Mayflowers, was... Um, apparently like not well trained at all and the trainer actually kind of fast talked his way into the position as like animal trainer on the set a fast talking italian how unusual <laughs> i think he might have been american but it's oh. uh, who knows how much they oh, spent shipping worse. over the dog trainer and his dumbass dog that wouldn't dog, do dog flies first class yeah yeah um so they spent a lot of time um and they say like you know don't work with children or animals anyway so they spent a lot yeah. of time trying to shoot around this dog like trying to get it to do what they wanted it to do and literally all the little dumbass does is chase a ball yeah the ball ball yeah not there's it's not a, a real stretch for the dog and at one point becomes very interested in bruce willis's balls balls which mm-hmm. is you know that's a, that's a joke of a kind yeah they um i i don't recall whether they're credited but the dog is dubbed with a person making dog sounds yes frank welker okay, okay good uh, Frank Welker, who was, uh, geez, I, uh, it would be easier to list the things that Frank Welker hasn't been in, to be honest. Oh, yeah, because what was it? There's like a short, I, I want to say that I saw on YouTube that it's something like, like, Frank Welker is the reason you think things sound the way they do. Right. It's like, th- yeah, like, this is, this is why you think dogs talk the way they talk. So ah, Frank so- Welker. He's been Fred and Scooby-Doo since the show came on the air in 1969. Um, mm-hmm. He also voices the dog, Scooby-Doo. There you go. He mm-hmm. was uh, Megatron and Soundwave and mm-hmm. Nibbler on Futurama. Oh, okay. So he, he took his experience as you know playing Bunny. Yeah, cool. Ball ball. Yes. Oh, and also the dog only chases a ball except for... Um, uh, the one time that he, uh, when when um, when when Hawk and uh, Anna are um, are kind of fighting their way out of the uh, contraption, it is uh, Hawk has to fight the butler with like the you know knives coming out of his arms. Kind of a you know sort of uh, I think that probably also influenced that um, uh, that that uh, the Deadpool design. That awful oh, yeah. one at the end of you know the Wolverine movie. It's just too bad Deadpool isn't a funny character, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I wish that they uh, made made him a little lighter. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 has to has to fight the butler. Andy McDowell tries to help, accidentally shoots him, <laughs> shoots shoots Bruce Willis on the shoulder. 
He's like, stop helping. <laughs> Which, you know, that's sort of like, yeah, two characters are in melee combat. And be like, well, I'm, I've am i got a gun. I'll, I'll shoot at them. And be like, you realize that there's like a 50-50 chance of, you know, shooting your party member if you're shooting into combat, right? And be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got a plus one on my, you know, gun combat. Sure. Like, you know, okay. You're all snake eyes. Like, okay, well, you, you hit Bruce Willis for all your damage. <laughs> It is, uh, it is funny, like, her, like, trying her best to help and just not succeeding. Yeah, it's like, I don't have any gun combat skill, like, I mean, but, I, but you have the gun. Yeah, she's an art critic and a nun, so, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not good in a gunfight. Um, but uh, Bruce Willis does end up, uh, you know, dispatching the butler, um, you know, <laughs> using his own knives to, to, you know, cut his head off. Um delivers that other joke that is not funny that I mentioned, you know, towards the beginning of the episode. Um, and then, okay, so now he's done. It's like, okay, well, now Andy McDowell's up, and she has to fight the dog. And the dog jumps on her, and she's, like, immediately bested <laughs> by this dog. Aw, just like Reggie. Yeah, she, like, jumps up and attacks her. Just, like, she's totally out of her depth, even just fighting this dog. Now, um, this, this dog, much <clears throat> like other toy breed characters in movies especially comedies literally just exists to get owned at the end of the movie which it does right yes um so you know that's good um <laughs> at, at, i forget at this how point, they kill it like it, it uh, falls out of a window or something no it is blasted out of a window by the tennis ball shooter oh yeah 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 Cause, uh, because she, yeah like they say like uh it's like arnold schwarzenegger like delivering a, a kill line Ball, yeah, ball. yeah, yeah. He had to, you know, let off some steam. Don't, don't stick around. Um, I yeah, so see you. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, is it possible that maybe we had been watching, you know, Batman Forever in the wrong spirit? I, you know, I was I was watching some of that on Pluto TV, and that that did occur to me. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. I mean, there maybe there's some other podcast that is just going over how how awesome and hilarious batman forever is well you know i don't know uh the director of that movie joel schumacher just passed away um after Mm -hmm. a very long career and life and i remember that literally everything he did was pretty much greeted with like hoots and derision you know like critics hated batman forever made a fuck ton of money you know so people liked it um and he i in a lot of ways he was seen as kind of a, uh, I don't know how to describe him. In a lot of ways he was kind of seen as a little bit of a joke. Um, and mm-hmm. now, like, you know, recently toward the end of his life, and especially now that he's passed on, people are looking back at his films and saying, like, hey, like, this oh, is pretty good. The joke was on us the entire time. Yeah. And like, he, I don't know he if was that laughing makes, all the way to the grave. I don't know if that makes the whiz any good, but... Probably not. I, I, no. I think that'd just be a bridge too far. Um, <laughs> so, so at this point, um, we we kind of glossed over the Mayflowers have been killed because the machine exploded because um, Hawk palmed one of the pieces that they needed to make it work right. And I do have to say that after you know seeing them blow up innocent people and shoot their own um, you know hirelings in the face. It is nice to see, you know, Sandra Bernhardt's character, um, you know, scalded with uh, molten lead. And, um, you know, what's his name? Electrocuted. Does the same thing happen to Darwin Mayflower? 
No, he um he gets electrocuted to death. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah and his eyes are like all like opaque afterwards. It's it's kind of gruesome. Yeah. Again, yes. like the movie not really pulling any punches on the violence. Um and yeah. this was uh, the ending of the movie was substantially rewritten like on the fly. There was supposed to be uh, I apologize for forgetting, but there was supposed to be some big set piece on a location in Italy or somewhere, but that wasn't doable. So um, And then Mount think... Vesuvius blew up. <laughs> and everybody was covered in ash. Um, yep. And so it just ended up, there was they, they shot a fight scene with uh, Richard E. Grant and Dana Aiello, like struggling in a limousine. Okay, yeah, so that, that fight scene got cut. Um, it was... Um... What it ends up being is, yeah, Danny Aiello, beforehand, he gets trapped in the Mayflower's fancy limousine, which, again, just, like, straight out of a role-playing game. It's like, oh, you know, you can you get so many hundreds of thousands of dollars to make your vehicle. It'd be like, well, I want to drive a limo. It's like, okay, well, you still have, you know, $90,000 left. Like, well, what are all the gadgets we can put in it? <laughs> and then that becomes, like, the, the, the team's limo that everyone drives around in. Um, but, yeah, so... This is where, um, you know, the, the butler, uh, you know, makes his escape from the, uh, from the limo going off the cliff. Um, Danny Aiello is trapped inside. Um, George Kaplan is trapped on the hood. As they go over, Kaplan shouts, my pension! <laughs> <laughs> Which is instructive of his character. He's only in it for the money. Well, I'm sure that it'll go to his much younger widow. Right. Yeah, so... So, yeah, that's, and we get, you know, this touching, sad moment where, you know, Tommy Fivetone didn't make it out. Um, but, you know, then things continue on. Mayflowers are killed. They uh, make, uh, the uh, Hawk and Anna um, make their escape via the uh, Da Vinci glider that we see in the beginning. Um, you know, you Da Vinci set testing up it. And you paid off. It pays off at the end. Yes, it does. People had a problem with this movie. I don't get it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so and you know the two of them have you know, kind of reconciled their relationship, and it's like you know I think the you know he's gonna go straight, and the nun's gonna become a normal person rather than be a nun. And she says it's too bad Tommy weren't here to see this. And then Tommy rides up on a donkey. <laughs> And he explains how he got out of it. He explains it was this super limo with airbags and fire suppression systems and, you know, all these, like, extra safety measures. So, of course, it blew up, but he was fine. And Bruce Willis's reaction to this is the crux of the movie. His reaction is, yeah, that's probably what happened. <laughs> so... Like, finally at the end of it like that's the thesis statement of the movie where like someone's like oh this completely baffling ridiculous thing you wouldn't have anticipated just happened to me and you're like yeah okay i believe you of course they kill the devil with miniguns right yeah it's one of those things that you roll with it and you're like this is the best thing ever <laughs> I, that that that's another moment which is a little bit of a bridge too far for me i believe that they um that was a decision made like fairly late in production they decided to rewrite the ending so um uh tommy so five tone get doesn't get killed and like i get what you're saying but it's kind of like okay so you like retconned him back to life like well, whatever mm -hmm. all right fine fine <laughs> as long as yeah, you guys oh. like it <laughs> right 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, Jen, but the entire movie is made up. You know, none of that actually happened. It was all a lie. <laughs> I have like maybe two quibbles about this movie and you're still <laughs> busting my balls about it. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm saying that like, yeah, it's, it's a sort of thing that, yeah, you know, retconned or not, it's something that you just kind of roll with it. Well, the important thing is that Hawk finally gets to drink his cappuccino. <laughs> yes, he does. Again, set him up pay him off i think it set him up knock him down but that's you know me subverting expectations i guess (laughs) now we didn't talk at all about the director of this movie who i think maybe got a little more than he bargained for when he signed on for it um i mentioned Uh earlier it's michael layman who gave us the immortal heathers very Mm -hmm. very very fucking funny movie and a classic um right so that one, unfortunately, didn't quite, I don't think it quite landed with audiences, but it became a cult film, as you all know, I'm sure, if you're listening to the mm-hmm. show. Uh, he then went on to do Meet the Applegates, which is about, um, it's a satire about some kind of like alien bug family living in suburbia that stars Ed Bagley Jr. I haven't seen it. Maybe one of you Type can tell cast. me if it's any good. Um, that one didn't hit either. And then the next thing you know, he's doing Hudson Hawk with uh, Bruce Willis, Joel Silver, and all the money in the world. But um, he was also, I mean, he brought along his, um, you know, the writer that he'd worked with, Daniel Waters. But these are two guys in their 20s, um, basically kind of being given the keys to, like, a huge, like, uncontrollable machine, um, mostly being driven by the star and the producer. Bruce Willis has denied that he was the one actually calling the shots on the movie, but the impression that I get... You know, not just from reading well, Richard E. Grant's... failure is an orphan. <laughs> not just from reading um, Richard E. Grant's account of uh, being on set, but from other sources, including Michael Lehman himself, even though... But he later retracted, probably because he didn't want Bruce to punch him in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Lehman was not necessarily calling the shots as the director. Um, Bruce Willis had a tendency to be like, you know, they'd set up for a shot... Like, he, he apparently had perfect timing because they'd spend all this time setting up a shot, deciding what they were going to do, and then right before they were going to roll, Bruce would be like, you know, it would be really funny if we did this. And, you know, then mm-hmm. they'd have to bend everything to accommodate the star, you know, because he is the star and he's holding the purse strings as well. Well, Yeah, I mean, you're, you're some... Yeah, you're some 20-something with two failures under your belt and the most bankable star says, hey, I want to try this. You know, you just kind of got to look at your writer and be like, well, I guess we're going to do it his way. Yeah, and of course, filmmaking is a process that demands a lot of compromise, and often you can get a stronger product from that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there was much of a spirit of compromise on the set. It probably <laughs> eventually curdled into, let's just get the fucking thing over with, because they were dealing with so many production delays and you know other speed bumps that... Mm-hmm. You know, you 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 had a point where like the it, like everyone just wanted the fuck off this movie. Yeah, which is sad, but you know sometimes it happens. Well, you know, art from adversity, like Red Letter Media says. <laughs> One other thing that I want to mention before we kind of wrap up. Uh, thank you for mm-hmm. your able summary uh, summary of the plot, Tim. Because I right. couldn't have well, done it. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, it made a lot more sense this time because when I saw it as a kid, like you know, I wasn't raised in that heathen catholic religion i I knew nothing yeah i i knew like i i barely knew anything about 
Catholicism or the Vatican. Like I know that nuns are a thing and there's a Pope. But so a lot of the like Vatican double cross stuff like didn't really it didn't hit for me, but you mm-hmm. know, it's fine. It it made more sense. Well, as on. as an adult in twenty twenty, like knowing the long um the long records of malfeasance by both the CIA and the Vatican and the Catholic Church, uh, it becomes a whole lot funnier. Yeah, it, it suddenly makes a lot more sense. Because at the time, like, you know, it was, you know, Pope Paul and, you know, everyone, you know, was okay with that. And, you know, um, yeah, the, I think the Catholic Church was maybe less maligned with reason at the time. Well, this... Or maybe where kids just didn't know shit about shit. Well... It was the kind with the Catholic Church. Um, it was the kind of thing where it was uh, something which people joked about, but yeah. wasn't a you know it wasn't yeah, really it, it, out it was in a the joke. public. Yeah, because, it was a joke, but it wasn't like a Louis C.K. joke, <laughs> right? Um, because yeah. I believe that the um, all the the real um, reporting on <clears throat> the abuse occurring in the Catholic Church that came out like in the mid-90s with the Boston Globe. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like people didn't know that like, you know, sometimes priests did shady shit. But anyway, um, one other thing that I want to mention is, you know, of course, you know, this is a podcast where a lot of time we talk about movies which didn't land when they came out, but then um, some some of them have become quite beloved. Um, I mentioned up front how many people seem to be really excited that we were talking about this movie because everyone seems to really like it and think it's funny at this point. I'm really excited about talking about this movie. I, I like, can I tell. Wanted, I want to release a, a module for Ninjas and Super Spies called, you know, Hudson Hawk and the, um, you know, Vatican II. Um, well, to, um, to that end, um, I found a piece in The New Yorker from uh, 2017 which is by uh, Richard Brody, where he does a reassessment of the movie, and he's very much on the movie's side. Um, did you read it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. And, I mean, I, I I agree with his conclusion, although not necessarily, you know, uh, I I didn't like the same things he liked about it, but, I, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do agree. Well, and, yeah, like... That's that's one thing that I want to bring up because it's it's a fair reassessment of the film. I generally agree with it, but there's a point where um, he says this. In short, the movie is nuts, and the execution of its comic inspirations often falls far short of their conception. Nonetheless, the film's unpredictably lurching antic nuttiness is far more energizing and enticing than Willis's grimly earnest exertions in Die Hard or the pseudo-apocalyptics of The Terminator. I'd rather watch the bold failures of Hudson Hawk twice. Now, I read that and I was like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, like, denigrate, you know, two you know very influential beloved you know franchises <laughs> yeah it's be like, like yeah like yeah i don't know it's like you know me thinks the lady doth protest too much like um, die hard and the terminator yeah also because it's like if you like die hard and the terminator <laughs> you would probably like hudson hawk too <laughs> yeah like like I mean, uh, just, as die a guy hard, who likes sucked. die hard and the terminator yeah those are both really good movies they're two of yeah. the best movies of their genre of the 80s like it's it's like that's so like come on yeah <laughs> like come but, the fuck on dude yeah but but he does make some other um salient points um he he does uh draw a connection between um you know hudson hawk and howard hawks you know thematically yes you know, kind of the like the highest um, like self-aware heist movie, 
Um, does he, he mention does say, the Hope Crosby connection as well? I, I believe so. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and he also says that, um, you know, Hudson Hawk failed where, like, because it was, it was useful as a, um, I don't want to say postmodern deconstruction, but I lack, you know, the actual, I can't think of what it would actually be, sort of, you know, a self-aware version of a, you know, heist comedy, mm-hmm. you know, movie. Um, and he's saying, like, well, they didn't, they didn't hit their mark with Hudson Hawk, even though this genre was due for a a, a breath of fresh air, like a new take on it, basically. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, the the new take, the new takes that we got on existing genres came to fruition um, uh, with things like, um, like, like pretty much like all the works of Quentin Tarantino. I mean, yes, you know, he he called like you know his his big breakout movie Pulp Fiction. Like it's it is clearly addressing like what its subject matter is but it's reimagining it in sort of a contemporary stylistic way mm-hmm. um same with uh like wes anderson like you know is his presentation is is you know the way that he is uh shooting movies is very very idiosyncratic it's you know it has a particular style to them um, I would also would also also say, also say Hawk is um, a s- kind of similarly postmodernist movie in the way that like The Princess Bride is sort of a fairy tale romance that's postmodern. Um, right, because uh, it's it's uh, Princess Bride was deconstructing the whole idea of a fairy yeah. tale romance and the kind of things you'd read in dusty books. Yeah, so all of those like that it exists and that it tried something different aware of tropes that had come before it but doesn't just like invert them it um it takes them off in its own direction it's like we all know these things and we have all these different fun elements and let's just play with them let's see what Mm -hmm. happens like let's let's take our sensibilities and impress them onto this existing formula and see what we get and you know in um in princess bride you get a classic in works at tarantino you get huge culturally influential movies and in Hudson Hawk you get you know a cult classic that was unfairly maligned at the time but that people who get it really enjoy it I'm glad to consider myself among them yes uh and I know a lot of you all feel the same yeah as as you should I mean you know the the these are you know cinema savvy moviegoers who you know appreciate a good time what can I say And remember, Hudson Hawk will be back in Hudson Hawk versus the Vatican Bank.